This podcast is brought to you by the upcoming Bioceuticals Seminar Series, The New Science of Detoxification with Dr. Chris Shade. Dr. Shade is a globally recognised expert on toxic burden and targeted liposomal delivery systems. He has lectured and trained doctors in the US and internationally on the subject of mercury, heavy metals and the human detoxification system. In this one-day workshop, Dr. Shade will share his deep understanding on how to restore, manage and augment all three phases of detoxification with profound implications for health. At the end of the day, you will have a full understanding of how to provide a personalised, holistic detoxification program that moves away from the hit-and-miss shotgun approach practitioners may have used in the past. For more information visit bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line today is Professor Michael Burke, all the way from sunny Melbourne. <laughs> now, Professor Burke is currently an NHMRC Senior Principal Research Fellow and is Alfred Deakin Chair of Psychiatry at Deakin University, where he heads the Impact Strategic Research Centre. He's also an Honorary Prof- Professorial Research Fellow in the Department of Psychiatry, the Florey Institute for Neuroscience and Mental Health in Origin Youth Health at Melbourne University, as well as the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. That is a mouthful, Michael. (laughs) He is past president of the International Society for Bipolar Disorders and the Australasian Society for Bipolar and Depressive Disorders. He's published over 650 papers, predominantly in mood disorders. His major interests are in the discovery and implementation of novel therapies and risk factors and prevention of psychiatric disorders. He's the recipient of a number of grants, including National Institutes of Health in, from the US, Simon Autism Foundation, NHMRC, Cree, and project grants Beyond Blue, Stanley Medical Research Institute Awards, and is lead investigator in a collaborative research centre. My goodness, that is a mouthful bio. Welcome, Professor Michael Burke. Well, thank you very much for chatting to me, Andrew. It's good to be talking. You've done a heck of a lot, (laughs) I've got to say. You must be busy. Thank you for spending your time with us today. Well, if you're older than Methuselah, you can fit a few (laughs) things in the year. (laughs) Firstly, Michael, tell me about your career, because this is really interesting. How did you first become interested in researching nutraceuticals in psychiatric conditions? But also, where does your career stem from? Well, I've been working in research for many decades now. So I've I've always been committed to trying to aid the quest to discover better treatments for people who've got psychiatric disorders. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've been working in development of therapies and repurposing existing agents and the development of novel therapies for a number of years. Much of my early work was involved in taking agents that were in use for other indications and looking at what other places they might have use. 
Um, and nutraceuticals simply became an extension of that. Uh, so I don't see nutraceuticals as a separate category in as much as I'm interested in anything that's potentially useful. Um, so in terms of the nutraceuticals, we first got interested in N-acetylcysteine. Mm. And we got interested in, in, in N-acetylcysteine because of literature that suggested that in a number of psychiatric disorders, there was oxidative stress and a reduction in glutathione. Uh, and there was a fabulous work by a Swiss re researcher called Kim Do, who, uh, whose work was really a major catalyst for our interest. So then we asked the question, if glutathione's low and there's increased oxidative stress, what are effective ways of addressing this? And N-acetylcysteine was the obvious answer. It's a precursor for cysteine, which is the rate-limiting step of glutathione synthesis, mm. and it has robust oxidative antioxidant uh, effects both through glutathione and as a free radical scavenger itself. And that got us onto doing studies, and uh, that's been more than a decade's worth of work, well, coming up for two decades' worth of work. Yeah, and this really interests me because from my nursing days, NAC or N-acetylcysteine was used for paracetamol overdose. So, And it still is. Yeah, and it still is. So, But when did its use in psychiatry develop? Was it that the Swiss researcher? Well, no, she didn't. Uh, Kim didn't look at NAC per se. So she just showed reductions in glutathione. So we thought, <sighs> what fixes this? And we, we got on to the idea of NAC. Now, as you say, it's, been, it's got a long tradition of use in medicine. So it's used for paracetamol overdose. In Europe, it's sold over-the-counter as a mucolytic, mm. so as a cough syrup, including in kids. Um, it's used as a renal protectant for people having renal angiography. Uh, and there's a huge emerging literature of people looking at NAC for, well, God knows anything, from bacterial resistance and bacterial biofilms to metal chelation to, uh, you know, there's a huge variety of things, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, a vast amount of, of work going on. Because oxidative stress is a um, pathophysiological mechanism that's operative in a very wide range of medical disorders. So the great difficulty with many of these nutraceutical approaches is, yes, these pathways are operative, but it's also true that history tells us that it's often much harder to ameliorate it than the preclinical clues would suggest. So um, you know, stories of vitamin A and vitamin C and a lot of other vitamins are informative because uh, there's decades worth of work showing that you've got lower levels of vitamin A or, and they might be associated with increased cancer risk. But most of the studies that have looked at correcting that haven't been spectacularly helpful. Mm. We've had a replay of that story with vitamin D where low levels of vitamin D are associated with pretty much everything. But most of the treatment studies have not been that positive. Um, and so I think one has to be very cautious when one approaches any panacea-like substance where you've got something that looks to be present in every disorder known to man, 
and people are looking at it as a cure for every disorder, the vast majority of those studies are not going to be positive. So correlation does not mean causation. And even if it's low, intervening doesn't mean that you're going to fix it because it might be an epiphenomenon or a downstream effect rather than a direct uh, causal part of the illness pathophysiology. So, you know, one has to uh, approach this this whole area with a degree of caution and one has to be very... uh, reticent to overinterpret the data, yeah. especially extrapolate from basic data to clinical treatment. So some of the trials using NAC for psychiatric conditions are ongoing and, and can't be discussed, but what can you tell us about the use of NAC in psychiatric conditions? Well, it's still early days. Um, what we found is that oxidative stress is present in almost all psychiatric disorders, and so people are looking at it uh, in many psychiatric disorders. But then there are people who also have come at the whole NS-talcysteine story from a different angle. So they've been interested in glutamate and particularly the role of glutamate in addictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have looked at NAC as an agent that impacts glutamate transmission. And so there's a whole group of researchers who are looking at uh, NAC through the lens of glutamate. So... In summary, NAC is being looked at in almost every major psychiatric disorder. Mm. And the nuts and bolts are that it's looking promising in a surprisingly wide number of disorders. But at the same time, I I think one has to say that the data are at this stage preliminary. For many disorders, there's only one or two studies, and we know that uh, it takes many, many studies before a convincing and clear picture of the place of an agent becomes known. Mm. So, so when... the first study we did was in schizophrenia, and we saw, we saw moderate, modest effects in uh, particularly negative symptoms in schizophrenia. Mm. This has now been replicated by one external group, which uh, is always reassuring, uh, and we're aware of a number of studies that are registered looking at NAC uh, and are and I think we all eagerly await those studies to see whether the effect that we saw was either replicated or refuted. Right. Uh, we also found that uh, it had in in a in the next trial we did it had an effect in bipolar disorder, and surprisingly this effect was rather larger than what we saw in schizophrenia. Uh, so there was quite robust effects in depression, particularly, and quality of life. Um, sadly, at this point in time, that that study has not been replicated by uh, an, another group, although we are in the final stages of doing a study to replicate that, and I am aware that other groups are planning to look at this. We've done a study in conventional depression. Um, it was a big study. Uh, 260-odd people. Um, And in the primary endpoint, which was change in depression at 12 weeks, it just missed statistical significance. It was not a statistically significant result, but it was statistically significant at 16 weeks, which is one month post-discontinuation, which is a curious finding and uh, not easy to explain. Mm. By now, there have been a number of other studies that have 
looked at NAC, and some of the ones are really quite surprising. So, for example, one of my favorite studies was a method, probably the best study in the literature in terms of study methodology, where they looked at NAC in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So this is a very big study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the most prestigious medical journal out there. And um, what I love about science is that often journeys take you places you never think they're going to take you. So what they saw was it was completely useless for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but on the mental health subscale of quality of life, they saw big differences between NAC and placebo. So these people who had idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, their quality, mental health quality of life, and that's a construct that looks quite a lot like depression, improved a lot, even though their physical health didn't improve at all. Um, and there are a couple, if you pool together all the studies of NAC in depression, there seems to be a signal that NAC improves depression. But there's also some very interesting work in the addictions. Uh, probably the best study is in, is in cannabis. Yeah. Uh, so a paper by Kevin Gray uh, from, I think, uh, from Carolina showed that NAC helps people quit cannabis. There's also studies in cocaine and one study in methamphetamine, ice. Uh, they're very small. They're pilot studies but uh, they do seem to show a, a, a hint of a signal. And we've just, together with Brazilian colleagues, published a study in smoking, uh, and we saw um, higher quit rates in people trying to stop smoking given NAC than people given placebo. And so we are trying to follow up the, um, the smoking finding. We've, we're looking, we've got applications in for funding to, to look at smoking. Uh, we're also working with Rebecca McKeaton at ANU to look at ice addiction. So we, we're planning to design a study of NAC in ice mm. addiction. Um, uh, there's also a very interesting study done in American combat veterans who were blown up by improvised explosive devices. And they gave them a knack or placebo immediately after the trauma. And what they found was a substantial reduction in the consequences of traumatic blast injury in people given NAC if they got it within the first 24 hours. The physical or mental consequences? Both, yeah. well, Both but particularly uh, the physical as well as the mental. So, so that's, that was for us a fascinating study. And yeah. again, it opens the door to the secondary prevention of head injury and a whole variety of traumatic brain injuries. Uh, the last thing to say where we're very interested is um, cognition. So if yeah. you look at the uh, the cognition literature, there's a, I, fed, I think it's fair to say, a weak signal that from methodologically very preliminary studies that it might have potential in cognitive disorders. Now, in our schizophrenia and bipolar studies, we pooled together the uh, a small subset of the people who had cognitive tests, and we saw a signal that it might be better in in working memory than placebo. Uh, again, this is preliminary data, and it needs to be replicated by methodologically more definitive studies. Sure.
Um, so, there's also some work in obsessive compulsive disorder. The, the bottom line of what I'm saying is that there are clues of efficacy in a surprising variety of disorders. I'm pretty sure that some of these are going to turn out to be false leads, but equally, even if one or two turn out to be real leads, I think that will be a major advance because many of these problems do not have a wide variety of of uh, useful treatments. Yeah. So I, I think it's an area of considerable promise. Absolutely. Well, one of the things I was questioning there is, given that many psychiatric patients smoke, and that that has in itself deleterious effects on health. Even if NAC can be used to reduce the smoking in these patients, then it will help their overall health and indeed their, maybe their prognosis in their, with their mental illness it's in itself. Absolutely. And I think this, uh, the smoking, I think, is a, a, sleeping, a sleeper issue in mental health. Mm. Um, I think people have just for years passively accepted that people with psychiatric illness are smoke. Uh, and it's kind of okay. But the new evidence suggests that it really isn't. Oh, no. But there's now really good evidence that smoking increases the risk for the development of depression and schizophrenia. Mm. So if you have never before had depression or schizophrenia and you're a smoker, you substantially increase your risk of becoming ill. But not only that, there's evidence that if you smoke, you're less likely to respond to, well to treatment Yes, and your prognosis may well be worse. And in particular, there's a link between smoking and suicidality. But anything that helps smoking, I think, has the potential to help mental health at a population level. Yeah. So, But you... again, we don't want to oversell this whole story. Uh, you know, you can't, uh, you can't launch a ship on a single pilot study all I would say about the smoking data now is that it really does merit a well-designed, large, rigorous, definitive study to tell us whether this really is a new treatment or it's a false lead. Yeah. It, it must be very confounding or, or um, frustrating, though, trying to indeed get enough numbers to do a study, given that you're talking about psych psychiatric illness. And so, yeah, no, that's always a problem. Um, uh, recruitment for clinical trials is perpetually a difficulty, uh, mm. and getting people onto studies is always a difficulty. The other thing that that is difficult in clinical trials, and nowhere is it more difficult than in depression, is that we've got really good treatment out there in the community. GPs are highly skilled now, and anybody who's depressed goes to a GP. They are highly likely to get onto a frontline antidepressant or to be referred to CBT. And um, what happens is a lot of people who have treatable illnesses are very well treated in the community. And what makes trials difficult is people who, for whom treatments are not useful are attracted to trials. And so trials tend to be done inadvertently in treatment refractory individuals which makes it much harder to find a signal. And this is an issue across all trials. The only situations where that's really not the case are disorders where there aren't good treatments. So we've just completed a study of NAC in autism. And as you know, there are no good biological therapies mm. for autism. Yeah. And uh, we had no difficulty recruiting uh, for an autism study because there aren't alternatives. 
But for depression and bipolar disorder, where there are alternatives, even though they're imperfect, it's a much tougher place to recruit. Do you also then attract, though, um, those people that might also be looking for a positive signal, and so you might get a false positive? Well, no, uh, simply because the only trials that are worth doing are trials that are well-blinded and use placebos. Uh, And so nobody who's on those trials should be able to guess whether they're on placebo or active medications. Open-label trials are are worthless. Yeah. Uh, You have to have a good placebo control. How do you placebo the taste of NAC? It's got a particularly (laughs) unpleasant taste. That is a very good question, and we, we put a lot of thought into it. And we use a technique which we call dusting. So if you open up a bottle of NAC, it stinks of sulfur Mm. because it's a very sulfurous compound. So the way we get around this in the placebo bottles is we dust the bottle with NAC. So you open up a placebo bottle and it'll stink of NAC because (laughs) there's NAC in it. But the NAC is on the outside of the bottle, not on the capsules. Ah, I see. And we've checked that they stink about the same. Yeah. And we can't tell the difference between the real and the fake because they all smell. Wow. So they trace amounts of NAC in our placebo bottles, but they all smell. I've got another question with regards to concomitant use of drugs. You know, when you're talking about psychiatric illness and you're talking about autism, where it would potentially be quite unethical to not treat with medication, do you you see any issue? Autism, there aren't any effective, there really aren't validated therapies for autism. People use drugs like antipsychotics, but it's not as if they have validated documented evidence of efficacy for autism. They are used adjunctively without good evidence of efficacy. So what about in psychiatry with, say, you know, major clinical depression? Um, oh, yeah. So well, what we do with the, the nutraceutical studies is we largely do studies uh, as add-on to treatment as usual. Now, that is a confound because people are taking stuff. So the way we operationalize our, our protocols is that those treatments have to be stable. So they have to have been on those periods, those treatments for some time before the study commences. Yep. In other words, you can't start a new antidepressant the day that you start the medicine, otherwise you have no idea what's doing what. Yep. However, we would argue that because we also have a severity cutoff, you have to have le- certain levels of symptoms in order to get into a study. If you're on treatment, whatever it is, and you still have clinically active symptoms of illness, the treatments can't be working that well. Yeah. Um, but I think it's unethical to stop um, active evidence-based therapies to put a person onto a non-evidence-based nutraceutical or placebo uh, and withhold what might be useful therapy. So that's why we tend to use um, uh, add-on designs for, for most of our studies. So three questions come to mind from that. The first one is, do you see any great safety concerns with the concomitant use of pharmaceutical drugs? Um, the second we don't one have is... good evidence for that. There isn't a lot of evidence that there are safety problems with the use of... Um, uh, NAC and concomitant agents. But I, I, I have a note of caution that there are 3,000 medicines in MIMS, and if there's one which there might be significant drug interactions, uh, we, we may not know what it is. So absence of evidence does not 
mean evidence of absence. So it's an it's an important unknown. Yeah. The second question that comes to mind is: Do you think maybe it's um, um, a real need for dose ranging um, finding, given that you know they're in a clinically depressed state? Concentrating on depression here, if they're in a clinically depressed state and they're on therapy, that it would be really important to look at dose ranging um, to see if they needed a higher dose rather than a lower dose. That is a very insightful question. One of the great problems with this field is nobody's done dose ranging studies, not properly anyway. Mm. There are a couple of small studies. When I say small, we're talking handfuls of people that have used multiple doses. And in those studies, there is a very weak signal that doses in the three to four gram range would be better than in the one to two gram range. But we just don't have any quality well-powered dose-ranging studies, but those studies do need to be done. Mm. And the third question that comes to mind is, do you think maybe, or is there a possibility that this would be an add-on benefit to pharmaceutical treatment in, for instance, well, like, you know, zinc with refractory um, depression, you know, that it might actually sensitise somebody to a, a positive effect to their medication? Well, we, the only data we have is on add-on. There are no monotherapy studies that we've done. Uh, there are some that other people have done for other indications, but for the most part, the vast majority of the literature only speaks to add-on therapy. So, Michael, what about relevant doses in various conditions? And I know this is a piece of string, um, but also any caveats that you might have come across during the trials. The whole issue of dosage is a very vexed one. So when we did our studies, we looked at the existing literature and we based our study doses on the, the studies that that preceded us. But if, if one was a skeptic, one would have to say that the first person who did the study in the absence of dose-finding data just picked a dose mm. without any good evidence and everybody has just followed the leader. Yeah. Um, so we used two grams a day um, and we don't really have confidence that this represents the optimal dose in the absence of dose-finding studies. There are a couple of smaller studies that have used variable doses. They're all horribly underpowered, but the signal seems to be that somewhere in the three to four gram range might be better. But again, there's also the, always the risk that the higher the dose, the greater your likelihood of running into into tolerability issues. So what are the major side effects that you've encountered? Well, we found it very well tolerated. Um, now, the literature on side effects is very messy. I, I would say that the only side effect that robustly we see is gastrointestinal type side effects, nausea. And there are some people who really cannot tolerate this from a gastrointestinal point of view, and they come off it. It's the only thing that people discontinue the drug for. If you go scratching through the literature, um, it gets very confusing because there's pro and cons on pretty much everything. So the first, you know, there, there's some caveats about NAC and asthma. Now, we've never seen this emerge in our data. And as I said, it's used uh, uh, as a, a and marketed as a mucolytic. Yeah. So there's a product called... Mucomist, um, yeah. which is a, and they're selling it as a treatment for cough, uh, as a cough syrup. So I'm not sure that that represents a real risk. 
The other one, um, there's animal data that suggests that it uh, might cause pulmonary hypertension, but this has never been replicated that I've seen, and pulmonologists are using it to treat uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and other related disorders. Mm. There's also confusing data in the epilepsy literature. Uh, so there are some studies which suggest it has anti-epileptic properties, but there's also evidence that in overdose it can cause epilepsy. Um, so that, I suspect, in overdose may be a real risk. And the last area is in the um, cancer area where there's confusing evidence. So there's some preclinical evidence where it's been used in animal models of cancer or preclinical models of cancer uh, and showed use. But also, theoretically, NAC might block apoptosis, which you would want in cancer. And there's some preclinical evidence that suggests that uh, blocking apoptosis might increase cancer risk. But this is not known. And as I said, the data is confusing. There's studies that show anti-cancer effects of, of NAC. So I, I think it's an area we need to look at, uh, but it's an uncertainty. Mm. Um, just a question on, on one of the things you said there was overdose. What dose was used in overdose accidentally? Well, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but it would have been very much higher than the standard used doses. Right. And, and the other question that comes to mind is with other touted sulfur donors, um, namely um, methyl sulfonyl methane or MSM, um, used mainly for joint um, repair, uh, one of the issues that's anecdotally noted out in out in the community is nausea when you take too high too soon, and so most people titrate the dose. Has anybody looked at titrating NAC to overcome those gastrointestinal side effects? Well, we've tried titrating down, um, and even if we go down to 500 milligrams, it remains. So it, those people who have substantial nausea... Yep. Uh, I think it's pretty much game over. Most people won't tolerate it, and reducing the dose tends not to get rid of it. Yep. And so those people generally are going to have to come off the treatment. And and how long before you see effect in various conditions? Like this is very variable. So um, in our schizophrenia and our bipolar studies. Um, we saw it only really robustly emerge at six months. In our depression study, we didn't see much at 12 weeks, but at 16 weeks, we saw a signal. However, in the study that looked at, uh, that, uh, that replicated our schizophrenia finding, they saw something at two months, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the addiction studies are also much shorter, two to three months. So we really don't know, but it's not quick. Whatever it is, it's not quick. It's not something that you take it for a week and you're going to be fine. And do you find that a particular uh, frustration, when, particularly when you're dealing with psychiatric illness? And I would say that compliance would be a real challenge in any case. But when you're looking at a longer-term therapy, how hard is that to keep them on it? We don't have drugs in psychiatry that work rapidly anyway. So most of our antidepressants are taking six to eight weeks anyway. Antipsychotics have it take a similar amount of time before people get better. So... I think most clinicians are comfortable with the fact that there are no instant cures. Uh, exactly how long one has to wait with NAC, I, I don't think we can be dogmatic, but it clearly is months, not 
weeks. Yep. But how many, we don't know. Yeah. And there's been some newer glutathione products on the market. And, you know, traditionally this was an area where glutathione was thought not to be uh, not to have good oral absorption. The the newer glutathione products state improved GSH levels using 600 milligrams, but it takes three to six months. Have you ever run across any comparator studies using NAC versus glutathione? Has anybody looked at this? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, there's some very early data with uh, a substance called N-acetylcysteine amide, which is a derivative of NAC. And again, they're claiming better bioavailability in these preclinical studies. And there are other ways of enhancing um, uh, glutathione, um, but the the if we have an incomplete evidence base for NAC, we most certainly have a very incomplete yeah. evidence base for the others. Um, so it's very early, and I, I don't know that we can really say much about the alternative agents. Um, the other thing about NAC is. Uh, it's got many decades of use in a variety of indications. So we have some sense of its safety profile, even though, as I mentioned earlier, there are questions open. Mm. Uh, and any new agent will have to um, slug it out in the preclinical safety and tolerability wars. Uh, and we know that um, for m- many new compounds, that's uh, a that's an area with a very high infant mortality rate. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is one of the things that industry needs to be aware of, and that is that, you know, if you have, let's say, an NAC amide, that's a new compound. Um, and so you can't just ride off the back, which is commonly done. You can't just ride off the back of previous research done on the original compound, can you? Well, generally, uh, if the moment, even if you make a relatively small molecular change to a compound, you have the potential to dramatically change its efficacy and safety profile. Mm. So uh, every new compound has to be assessed in and on, on its own right as an independent agent. So, Michael, could you give our listeners a wrap-up, a summary of what you think uh, the future of N-acetylcysteine in psychiatry is going to be? Um, it is early days. It's very promising. Uh, uh, we wouldn't be putting the energy that we are into this if we didn't think that it was a promising area of endeavour. But we need to be very careful not to be touting this as a cure-all for everything. This is not going to be magic and it's going to cure all psychiatric illnesses. I very much doubt that that's going to be the case. I would hope that as the evidence accumulates, we'll find a replicated signal in some problems. And I suspect that signal is going to disappear in other disorders. Yeah. Um, we'll have a better sense of uh, how to use it and where to use it. Uh, we'll begin to understand in, uh, its use in conjunction with other therapies. Um, but uh, I still think it has promise and in an area where uh, good quality alternatives have been lacking. Professor Michael Burke, I thank you so much for joining us today and taking us through the responsible use and potential uses of N-acetylcysteine. And I look forward to I look forward to the day when I can stumble more over your increased bio bio <laughs> biography. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much. It's been great to chat. Thank you, Professor Burke. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. This podcast was brought to you 
by the new science of detoxification, advanced approaches to phase 1, 2 and 3 support. For more information, visit bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events.